Thank you that we're gathered together this morning. Uh, thank you for um, a time that is set aside, a time that we certainly hope that we all anticipate um, with a glad heart, uh, knowing that the week has had its effect as well on us, on our spirit, on our soul, on our intellect, on our desire, on our at times our frustration. So we we bring ourselves before you as we are with those very uh, various emotions. Uh, we want to give you thanks and praise and rejoice, Lord, for Mark and Suzanne. I think that's wonderful. We all do. So bless them, Lord. Um, let this time of study together be encouraging for them and for all of us, Lord. Be glorified through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, here's it. We come to, is this too cool or anything? Let me know. It feels good, doesn't it? It is cool. It is. It is cool. It feels good. Uh, the summer is just, it's just, I and mean, I know it's not even official here yet, but it's not even giving a hint that it's on the way. Yeah. So be it. We come to the end of our uh, Sunday school adult class season. Last one today before the fall comes, or late summer, early spring, uh, early fall. Sorry. So we're in the book of Malachi. And I think we've done a nice job. We've had a lot of different teachers. We've had some really good things. Yep, we've had some really good things going on. And... Uh, Hopefully it's been a, a good learning experience. I have, we, they are all, not all, I have a few more to upload to the website as yet uh, from the last couple of weeks. Um, my own notes, I've used like a PowerPoint presentation. That's how I teach from and I'm on, I get like 170 slides just from the things that I've covered. So if anybody wants something like that, I can make that available to you as well. Just my notes that I, that I speak from if that's helpful to you. Um, and we know that from our earlier studies, so, so this is the book of Malachi is the last book in the, uh, our English translations, our English scriptures. Does anyone recall chronologically what the last books were in the Hebrew Bible? If you recall that. The first and second chronicles, yeah. First and second chronicles were sort of a recapitulation of so much of, from the very beginning all the way up to the exile to the return. So, but uh, for reasons I don't really haven't studied. I'm not sure why things are in the way they are, except that Malachi is the last in, in, in uh, chronology and the last in time as well of the Old Testament prophets. Yeah, man? Can I make a comment? The last chapter of Second Chronicles, yeah, verily. you said at the end of the Hebrew Bible, says this in verse 16, but they mocked the messengers of God mm-hmm. and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, so that might be wow. an appropriate reason. Yeah, very appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and, and uh, which almost makes it sound like they learned nothing, right? It, it almost makes it sound as though they learned nothing. As we Last week when we studied uh, Zechariah, I mentioned that I had subtitled the message of Welcome Home, Nothing's Changed. <laughs> the people had come back from exile, and I don't know that they were expecting anything different, but things were set as they always have been with God. Yes, Mark? Just kind of like an overview. It almost seems like the rebellion that started in Genesis and it went widespread yeah. and full circle mm-hmm. and then God brought it back to the life of the just read there and were, it, it didn't get better. It didn't, you're right. No, they didn't learn that. It didn't. It's a tragic history, but for the remnant, of course, right? Yes, yes, but it is a... Yes. The, the history of Israel is a, just a... Not only is it a tragic history, but it is a... It's, it's in its own way a microcosm of just the human condition. So... In many ways, God had appointed and chosen Israel, his elect people, so that they could represent him to the nations, so that they could be a light to the Gentiles, so that they could image him. 
And in the end, what they ended up doing until Jesus came along and fulfilled the, the calling of Israel is just imaging themselves. <laughs> they became a history of the image of false gods. And it's, it's a brutal history uh, with some very bright spots along the way. But anyway, we come to Malachi, the last of the prophets. Uh, the name Malachi means my messenger, which is sort of a veiled sort of irony to that, given the fact that we're going to see in chapter 3 and chapter 4, two other messengers are mentioned. Two very important messengers are mentioned. <laughs> Critical to our New Testament understanding, of course, which we'll, we'll see when we get to those. Uh, major theme of the book of Malachi, which, by the way, I've, cited, I've subtitled, You Can't Handle the Truth. That's the, that's, the, that's the title of our lesson this week. Malachi, You Can't Handle the Truth. Um, right. uh, the major theme of this book is covenant. Well, why do you suppose that is? Why would the major theme of a prophet be covenant in this case? This late in the day. Right? You know where we're at in times of... Uh, so, so this late in the day, why would covenant be such a major theme? And remember our, our Old Testament... This is our biblical hermeneutic, right? We spoke about this at the very beginning when we talked about what is the Bible all about and various things. It's about Jesus. It's about, it's about you know, this and that. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, that's all... It's such a huge part of it. But the, but the big narrative of Scripture is God's righteous rule of His kingdom. And so we had determined, I determined that our hermeneutic for teaching this series would be that these three points in our hermeneutic to understanding it is God's righteous rule of His kingdom, man's response to God's righteous rule, and then God's response to man's response. That's been our guiding principle throughout and continues to be. And that, in fact... I take that to all of Scripture all the time now, and it just helps me to keep those three little bullet points. Just keep me, to keep, no matter what I'm reading in Scripture, it helps me to keep the big story in place, because everything fits into that big story. So, <clears throat> it makes good sense that we're dealing with covenant here, and we'll see that as we go through the timing. In particular, there are three covenants that are mentioned in here specifically: the covenant with Levi, covenant with the fathers, and the covenant of marriage. And I think these three are important, of course, but it's all symbolic of that much bigger covenant. We, all, we know that um, God often uses the covenant of marriage as a picture of his relationship to his people. The covenant of the fathers, who, who would that be at this point? So at this point, around 400-something B.C., what, what would the covenant of the fathers be? What's the big one? Abraham. Yeah, right, right. That's the big one, right? And then there'd be the Davidic covenant as well. Uh, and then, of course the breaking of these covenants, and indeed the entire Mosaic Covenant, and the consequences. This is the major theme of what's going on here with the prophet Malachi. And Malachi, he, he touches upon 11 major doctrines that are integrated throughout all of Scripture that, have, that are very important to knowing, understanding the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Like, so he, he addresses such things as, I'm not going to mention all 11, but divine election is a very important one, of course. The sacrificial system, the coming Messiah, the second Elijah. Okay? And he also has nine specific connections to the book of Deuteronomy, right? Including, there's only two books that begin with an address to all of Israel. The first is Deuteronomy, the second is the book of Malachi. Each one of them also reference the fatherhood of God. And, and, and there's others. But so there's a lot going on in these four chapters of Malachi. In some ways, it's almost like the mark of the Old Testament, you know. In the New, the New Testament Gospels, Mark is the briefest and the quickest moving of all of them. You know, it's like one thing after another. Malachi covers an awful lot of stuff, and he jumps right in and starts 
right off. The situation, this is somewhere around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. What was going on in the time of Ezra and, and Nehemiah, do we recall? Yeah, rebuilding the temple. And how was that going? Well, how, well, well, how, how did that, how did that, uh, how did that progress? Uh, yeah, yeah, it wasn't very good, right? Remember, you had Tobiah uh, the, uh, in, in, in the uh, the what was it? and you had Sanballat, right? And you had Tobiah the what? What was he? Was he an Ammonite? Was he a? He was one of the ites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tobiah might have been Tobiah in, in Sanballat, the Horonite, right? And so those guys were bad news. They prevented the wall from being built and the people got very discouraged and Ezra and Nehemiah came along. So they had returned from exile and Ezra and Nehemiah come along. And in, in, in their Old Testament survey, I don't know, bear note that with Ezra and Nehemiah, Scripture was elevated to a new level of authority and power. And this dominant role of Scripture continued in both Judaism and Christianity. And so you recall that. Remember when they had the reading of the law and the people wept and they said, no, no, this is a day to rejoice. And they had to talk about how they stood up in front of the folks and they helped them get the understanding. Well, Malachi comes after them. He's contemporary to them, but more or less a little bit after them. So it's, it's, it's that much more reason why, that much more reason why they should have been understanding and uh, in, in why Malachi's message is, is the way that it is and why he confronts them the way that they do. Because important in the mind of the Israelite is, you know, a lot of time has passed. They, Wait a minute, we've been back here, and we were in captivity 70 years, and we're back here in Jerusalem now, right? Uh, but we're still under Persian authority, right? We, we, we still don't have our full culture. I mean, the, the promises of God, where are they? Where is the covenant being fulfilled? Where is that going on? Why, why isn't that happening? And with that mindset, God confronts His people with six disputations, six debates, six things that He takes up with them. And He has something to say about it. It's kind of a He said, they said, He said thing that's going on. Fits in very nicely with the hermeneutics, so it's a nice way to, to tie off the Old Testament with that sense of, okay, this is God's kingdom. This is how He says it operates. And well, they say something in reply, or they live in reply. And then God turns around and says something else back to them. So he's going to engage in these six disputations with, uh, with the people of God to make very important points about where they are at in their relationship with God and where they think they should be at, why they are where they're at, and what needs to happen for the fulfillment of all things to come. And we start out in the first chapter with the first of these sort of disputations, with the first of these challenges that God makes. So, in chapter 1, I'm going to read here uh, verses uh, 1 through 5, the, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. We don't know anything else about him, right? This is one of those prophets. We don't know what his lineage is. We don't know who his people are. We don't know much about Malachi. Okay? Um, except that it means my messenger. <clears throat> I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And then God's reply, is Esau, Jacob, is not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry, 
forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So, God says, I have loved you, and they say, in so many words, well, in what way have you loved us? This is an amazing question. The audacity, right? Uh, The audacity of dope, I call this, right? I hear that a lot with street people. Like, really? Where's God? He never did this for me. He didn't help That's a me very good God. point. You know that, brother? That's a great point. I've, I've heard that as well. I remember one time, uh, our sales manager, back when Dave and I were working together, back at the Big P, Pepsi, and despite the debauched liquid he drinks now back there. <laughs> uh, but, but back at Pepsi one time, I remember the sales manager, he said something to Dave like, hey, what is this God of yours going to give us some nice weather? And Dave was just, you know, gracious, didn't, didn't reply. But I did. I shouted back to my office. He says, I said, he owes you nothing, wretch. And unless you're thinking, <laughs> unless you're thinking of every breath you're taking, you don't have any right to even say that, you know? But, but I mean, I had that, that playful kind of relationship with him, you know what I mean? But, but, but yeah, you do. You hear that quite a bit. What, what, what have you done for me lately, God? What verse were you referring to with that thought behind just, it? Just that first one. It says, when they said, what, and, and how have you loved us? Oh, right there back in the first verse. Okay, the second verse, I have oh, loved yes, you, says the Lord. But you say, God's people say, how have you loved us? And God's going to go on to detail that. I entered into a covenant with you. I've shown you my electing love. And I know that that's meant nothing to you. So many. I know that's meant nothing to you, Israel. I know, that's how you can ask the question. You can ask the question, how have you loved us? Because you have despised my love. You know? Uh, so, Edom and, Edom and Esau are the same thing, by the way. They're both referenced to it. Oftentimes in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, one person represents an entire nation. That happens all the time. That kind of language is used in Scripture quite a bit. And Edom, by the way, is mentioned by a larger number of prophets than any other nation. Okay, now other prophets might address Edom more times, but but uh, but Edom is mentioned by the the most the largest percentage of the prophets than any other nation, uh, and that's also because Edom tends to also at times in Scripture represent all nations and represents those that God is not in covenant with. Geographically, where is that located? Do you know? Do I know where uh, uh, Edom is? Uh, the Edomites? I don't. I don't. Yeah, know. due east of Jerusalem. Is it? What's that? Due east, 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 east of Jerusalem. Uh, the kingdom I mean, of the south. East of Jerusalem. Today it's the kingdom of Jordan. So bang it right at the Temple Wall mm-hmm. if you're traveling north. Jordan. Kingdom of Jordan. Right. Yeah. And I, I did a study on that some years ago, and uh, the curse against Edom is still worth They don't mm. have much of anything over there. Yeah. They don't have the resources of the rest of the, the countries in the Middle East. Mm. The curse is still active in that land. The Edomites. Yeah. That, that was really what was on. And they're descendants yeah. of Esau. And by the way, yes, yes. Yep. and that's why Esau and Edom are synonymous. They, they, they use those interchangeably. God can refer to Esau as an entire nation, which I believe he's doing here. All right. And now this language of love and hate, this comes up a lot. And you've heard... I'm sure all things what that means, as if you know, hate means love less. Yeah. Maybe in some setting it does. Uh, in his commentary, Doug Stewart says, in the diploma. Now remember, when any time we're reading something, I was glad Gary made this point from the pulpit again last week. Uh, this this was not written. The, the prophet Malachi did not write this letter to us. It's for us, but it's not written to us. It's written to a culture and a time and a people with enduring, abiding principles that have to be properly understood. It's like we have to exegete the culture in a way. But 
So, uh, he says, in the diplomacy of the ancient Near East, the language of love and hate was employed not to indicate personal affection or emotion, but routinely to convey concepts of alliance or enmity among nations. Thus the statement, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, could just as well be rendered, yet I have allied myself with Jacob, and Esau I have made my enemy. Mm. I think that's, that's one of the most helpful explanations of love and hate that I've heard yeah. in all of scripture, particularly in that context of covenantal uh, relationship. It's used in that context where we think he actually hated Esau as a man. Yes. It has nothing to do with personal emotion. In fact, it, right. it, it would be said, it was also said of kings, that the king, a king loved a nation he, that he was in alliance with. He hated those who wasn't. So it had nothing to do with personal, a singular personal relationship. Although, certainly there's application to being God's covenant people. Yeah. I think the carryover from Romans 9 back to Malachi, Malachi back to... Uh, Romans 9 is the fact that one's position before God mm. has changed. Mm. One as an enemy went before right. God's fault. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, Romans quotes this, right? right. So, um, in about nations, again, represented by the individuals, okay? Which, of course, is what he's saying here. He's not talking about, I, in particular, I loved the individual Jacob, but I hated Esau. In a sense, that's true, but that's extrapolated to mean the entire nations and people represented by them. Why do I say that? Because he goes on to say, Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals. If Edom says, we are shattered but will remain, the Lord says, they may rebuild. So you know that they're talking about in a representative way there. So the point is, you are my elect people. That's how I've shown you my love. What does it mean that I've elected? That's where it starts, right? Isn't that where it all starts? I mean, if we don't get that first and foremost, don't you not understand that I have entered? I have ma- I have allied myself with you. I have I have taken you into myself. You know, that's the first thing that we have to get right in understanding and how to re- how to relate to God. So it's no surprise that that's the first thing that God, the Spirit, uh, you know, uh, works through Malachi to dispute with the people with who dare to dispute with God. In what way have you loved us? I mean, we've been in exile for 70 years, right? We've been this one, we've been that. And pay attention to that pattern of the way they're thinking, because it's, it's important understanding this, this book thoroughly. Uh, and, and I'll try to drive the point home here and there, but particularly at the end as well. We come to the second disputation. We find in chapter 1, verses 6 through 2, 9, though I'm just going to read a few portions. I'll read uh, verses 6 through 10, and then I'm going to read verse 14, chapter 1. <clears throat> chapters, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses uh, 6 through 10. It says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's temple may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show your favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. 
with such a gift from your hand. Will he show you favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? <clears throat> oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. You can sense the God's anger in this answer a little bit. God's anger. Because, because the question that they ask should provoke anger. We say, how have we, how have we dishonored you? They know exactly, in a way. They know what a father is. They know what a master is. You know, <clears throat> in terms of sort of present application, I guess, or not present application, but we think about... Um, I was trying to come up with something. Do, do we have a flippant sort of concept of you know, arriving to church on time? It's, just, it's a silly little example. Without being legalistic, right? And coming together with God's people, making that important, Right? And I, 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 it's safe to say this because I don't know anyone in our church that does this, so I'm safe to say I don't know anyone that's consistently late for church all the time. But I wonder what that person's job is like. Do they show up consistently late on the job all the time? Right? And the question that just is raised in my own mind that I try to think about is how do I think about the body of Christ and uh, the, the duties and responsibilities of an elder and that kind of thing? How do I think about that? In terms of God as my father, my master, my king, and all these things. So then, no way do I bring a polluted sacrifice. Yeah, Todd. Well, no, my dad. Um, I think the thing that would have been the most divisive thing I ever could have done to my father mm. was not swearing at him, mm. not um, uh, lying to him. Mm. Uh, he would have forgiven us. But showing a lack of respect for my father would have been the thing that would have ruined my relationship yeah. to him. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Verse 14 says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices it to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Interesting that, right? My name will be feared among the nations. He's talking to just the Israelites. But if you don't do that, how is my name going to be feared and known among the nations if you do this? Who does it sound like in the New Testament, by the way? Who does it sound like in the New Testament? Uh... Cursed be the cheat who has made a ma- who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord who has blemished. I'll give me the hints in the Book of Acts. This is what I thought of anyway. Ananias and Sapphira, right? Remember when they were? Remember when all the people were bringing what they had and depositing it for, for all to share as, as each one had need. And so Ananias and Sapphira went and sold a parcel of land and acted as if they were giving the entire portion, but kept the part back. So they lied, right? They lied to the Holy Spirit. They gave a, a polluted sort of sacrifice in a way. And Peter ended up saying, you, you didn't have to give it all. It was yours to keep. Why get lied to the Holy Spirit? And, and then God took him out. You know, God killed him. This is the same God. He says, I am a great king. My name will be feared among the nations. It's to have that great and high... You know, think of, think of some of our poor... Uh, and this is particularly so in, uh, in the black community, 75% fatherlessness. You, 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 you miss out on that innate sense of reverencing male authority in the home that God builds into us. It, it's a deprivation. It, it, it's like they're not getting the nourishment that they need in that in so many of those communities. And 25 or so percent of white families as well. Um, so it's this systemic problem. 
Anyway, um, this lack of seriousness regarding sacrifices. How can that be? This is the inimical. This is critical to their whole uh, uh, system of belief and understanding. Like our so-called good deeds, right? We make lame sheep of ourselves. There's no, there's no blemishes welcome. And the Levites are not taking their appointment seriously. They're supposed to teach by word and example, as Peter says. You know, be examples under the flock. But the Levites were supposed to teach the people. They were supposed to set an example of how to live. And they weren't. These are the priests, the Levitical priesthood. You see what a mess this is? This is so. This is okay. So they've been in exile. Now, you might think in exile, okay, we really have to focus on, we know that this is God's punishment, we know that God has promised that He would do this, God has consistently done everything He said He would do in the covenant, here we are in exile now, let us reorient our minds, let us return to God and while we're here in exile, let's get our minds right, let's do what we have to, have to do to be the people of God, and they've got time to do this, and then they come back. And they've had Ezra and Nehemiah, and they've had they were back in the homeland, and they're seeing the temple be rebuilt, even if it's not the same so-called glorious temple, right? And this is where they're at. And they have the audacity to ask God when God says something to them like, "I have loved you." That's why I titled this: "You can't handle the truth," right? Because this is what God is saying. They're asking me. You're not ready to hear this yet. But the whole nation fell down because they yep. were instructed. Every man was instructed to tell his kids mm-hmm. when they got up in the morning, when they went out, yes. when they went in and out. And yes. they, they were supposed to yeah. uh, reiterate the history of it to their kids. Yeah. And they obviously didn't. You know, they just weren't. Before they even went up and received the Decalogue, before Moses even went up on Mount Sinai, before he went up there, and before the people came around Sinai, they were told to consecrate themselves. Now, in, in that time, it was to wash themselves. Now. But it was to consecrate themselves. It was to prepare yourself for this amazing thing that God is going to do. You know? And you're not doing that if you're not living that life, giving that to your children. Here's the next thing that goes on. Uh, chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. You've turned against me, and you've turned against your wives. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? I'm going to read 10 through 16. Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning. Why? Because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor in your hand. But you say, why does He not? Why doesn't God accept our offering? Well, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What that boy did that verse grab me? With a portion of his spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your, your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. How can you even pretend to be in a covenant with me when you cannot be in a covenant with the woman, the wife of your youth, 
you have violated that covenant. You have violated the very thing upon which, uh, the structure upon which I've built part of my revelation to you in terms of what is our relationship like. Right? I have taken you as a, a wife to myself. This continues in the New Testament as well. The New Testament picks up a couple of themes here. God says that, you know, to, for, marry, for believers to marry one another so that your offspring are holy, right? So that your children are holy. This is where it's grounded in this Old Testament thought, right? Uh, why doesn't he accept our sacrifice? Well, they're bringing it with, they're coming to the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he won't accept it. Why won't you accept it? Well, this is why. You see, this isn't the covenant. This is the, your sacrifices mean nothing to me when this is going on and you're allowing it. And you might recall Nehemiah had to do the same thing, man. He had to go pull the beards out and pull the hair out of people's heads. What are you doing? He was ripping the hair out of their heads. What are you doing? Right? Remember that? You married the daughters of foreign gods and they were warned against us way back in Joshua. Joshua chapter 23. You know... <clears throat> And other places. Joshua 23, verses 12 to 13. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. That was a warning he gave back when he was fulfilling all the promises, the land promises, that were fulfilled. This leads to idolatry. Look at Solomon. Took 300 wives and ended up building temples to 300 gods. God rejects your offering because you're divorcing your wives. So Israel's falling into these same old sins, right? Yet again. Right? But, and, and so what does this tell us? So all this is happening, all this is going on, which just, so on, on the one hand, it continues to reveal the desperation of man's condition. And on the other hand, of course, it reveals something greater still, which is the grace of God. You know, we, this makes when we think of Paul in Romans nine sixteen, it says, "So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy." This helps us to understand, if we don't already from our own lives, this this helps us to understand how merciful God is. When all of this is going on, He's already taken them into sent them in exile. He's taken them home. He couldn't just send them right back into exile, but instead, here He is, just confronting them. That's what Scripture is supposed to do. Scripture is supposed to confront you right where you are. It is supposed to grab you right there. It is, it is, it is a full frontal assault, Scripture is. So he, we come to God's fourth disputation with His people. Any thoughts on that? On the wife and the divorce thing? You know, this is why divorce is spoken of in, in New Testament the way it is. Uh, there are people that line up on somewhat different sides of this. You have uh, teachers like John Piper that believe that divorce is uh, never acceptable, ever. That you're married once and for all and forever. And then you have what I think is certainly the more biblical position. I think, I don't say that lightly about John Piper, but in the situation of adultery, right? And we certainly know that the, the book of Corinthians itself seems to speak well to me. If you remarry, marry in the Lord. Right? 
Like it's Suzanne, right? You're doing it right! <laughs> right? It's important to God. And um, that, that it, it, it's, it's, it's very telling, especially in our day and age, how critical this, um, this, this, the relationship of marriage is. That God continues to speak to that in a number of ways. Not the least of which is look what happens when it's fractured. Look, the, the only way that we could have the proliferation of sexual filth that we have in our culture today happening at lightning speed is if the family didn't fall apart. Okay. Right? So, and we can't simply blame secular government, but you know, in the 50s and 60s, when the government began to subsidize fatherlessness, that really started to take hold. It coincided with the drug and sex culture and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. Such an important thing, you know. It's too bad they don't have something like the Massachusetts Family Institute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They do, um, and there's good reason to be involved in that. Very good reason. Yep. They issued a fatherlessness report a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry. A fatherless report. They oh, did they really? I'd like to see that. Is that on the Great website? History. Yeah. I'm gonna check that out. Yeah. Great. Yeah, yep. I would have, I would have probably had I known that I would have probably referenced it as something. Give more recent stats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just it's always there, right? We know this. I hear about these stats quite a bit, you know. So, um, and now we come to another uh, God's fourth disputation, which begins in verse 17 of chapter two and goes through chapter three, verse five. And I'm going to read 2:17 through 3:1. You have wearied the Lord with your words. God says, you have weir- I am sick of hearing you talk, is the way we would say it. I'm sick of hearing you. <laughs> you have wearied the Lord with your words. Right? Now, we, now, this we have to remember sort of the anthropomorphisms that we use in the scripture, right? Which is when we take yeah, human attributes and we sort of understand God that way. Right? Because, I mean, I mean, did God literally get tired and wearisome? It means something. It means something. It it affects God somehow. God, we have a very real relationship with God. It's not pretend. It's not just a one-sided thing like God relates to us and we relate to God by the way we relate to one another. No, 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 no. There's something very real going on. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, well, how have we wearied Him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? That's how. You wear me. Just listen to the stupid thing you say. That everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, a.k.a. Universalist, Unitarian Universalism. Right? And he delights in them. God delights in people that do evil. Now, maybe they don't say it exactly that way, but taking, taking sin and covenant breaking with such a little seriousness that you can say something like, oh, God delights in you. Well, good news for you, he doesn't delight in you. You make him sick to his stomach. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? What a thing to say. I mean, God is so concerned with justice throughout the Old Testament. You hear about it all the time. We heard about it even as recently as the prophet Micah. You know, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to deal justly. <coughs> he says in Jeremiah, he says, uh, but, but I delight in this. Let, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me and understands me, that, <clears throat> that I am what? One of the things he says, I love mercy and I love justice. Behold, I send my messenger, and uh, he will 
prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So again, questioning God's justice and saying that he delights in evil. This isn't... Um, this isn't... Uh, he, he's not using... Uh, exaggeration here. This is not hyperbole. This is really happening. This is what the people are doing. And it says, so God says, my messenger is coming. God says, here's my answer to your question about injustice. Here's my message about, here's my answer to your question about that I ignore you, that I think you... My messenger is coming. And he's going to give, and, and, and God will purify Levi. And he's going to bring judgment in contrast to lighting his sin. I will continue to show you what I have already shown. How can they ask this question? How can they say at this point that, that where is the God of justice? Well, maybe because it's they're being still oppressed. They're still under Persian rulership. So they're seeing it that way. What's this pattern that we continue to see? That the Israelites who are chosen to represent God continue to see what they think should happen with everyone else, but they're not seeing it in themselves. I mean, this is the whole, how do, you, how do you try to take the log out of your brother's eye when you can't see the speck in your own? Never mind, accuse God of it. But again, this just shows us the desperation of the human heart and why it does take a miracle. It takes, it takes a new birth. It takes a, we call it a miracle, right? Because it is a miracle. It's something supernatural. This is not something that can just come about through information and rehearsing and reciting. Something has to happen outside of us, into us. Right? So this is so. There's two messengers here. It says, "Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me." Who's that a reference to? Christ. No, oh, no not yet. Before that, yes. But then there's the second one. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And who would that be? That's Jesus. So we have two messengers mentioned here, and they're going to be mentioned again later. But so we we see in its nascent form here this reference to John the Baptist, and then Jesus Christ, who is of course the messenger of the covenant. I love that title. I have a tie with like the various titles of God on it, like Messiah and Jesus and, and Eternal Father and Wonderful Counselor, but it doesn't say Messenger of the Covenant. I like that title. Um, in verse 5, it says here, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. You want judgment? Then I will draw near to you in judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. Ooh, that's a large percentage of the population that are asking the question. <laughs> that's a large percentage of the Israelites that have the audacity to ask the question. Who does this sound like, by the way? When he says God has come against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the faith and the fatherless. Who's even... Who in the New Testament do you think of? Who in his letter addressed these very things? Paul did. Yeah, but, but very specifically, James did, right? Remember when James said, God hears the cries of the laborer whose waves you're sort of holding back, the wages you're holding back on. Right? God cares about that stuff. God cares about that. Why? Because these are little, these are little mini covenants made between one another. There's a covenant between me and my boss. I'm going to pay you this, you're going to do this. Right? <laughs> Joyce said, you're going to do all the work on the farm and I'm going to reap the benefits that's, that's, what's that? best employee I ever had was a silver painter <laughs> yeah. lowest paid employee in agriculture today 
Joycelyn Wright. Uh, God cares about that. So think about the people that are questioning God. Among them, surely there are those that are adulterers. They swear falsely. They oppress the hired worker's wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner. By the way, I don't think that verse is used properly when people try to say that with immigration, you know, we get remember. Whoa, 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 God is talking about a theological set-aside nation. Now, there's a principle, of course, that we want to care for the widow and the orphan, and, and of course we do that. But this, this, this. Literally, I mean, I don't want to sound irreverent, but you have to rape the text to make it say that. You really do. And why should we be surprised at that with our, our government? So, <clears throat> what do these replies by Israel demonstrate, if not a lack of belief? Right? These, these replies that Israel has given back to God, it's, it's just a lack of belief. It is unbelief in the promises and the covenant of God. After all this time. They're still not believing. Oh, they, they like the part where God brings them back into the homeland. They like the part where they're going to have the temple rebuilt. Right? They, they want God to keep His part of the covenant promises even while they despise, not just neglect, but they despise their part of the covenant. This is, this is after returning from exile. I bought a book once on uh, raising teenagers. Time, time, uh, on raising teenagers. <laughs> uh, or or, or let, me say, let, let me go let me state that because I have many books. One of the books I bought <laughs> once upon a time. This is the title of it. And, and again, this is a book about raising teenagers. This is the title of the book. Get out of my life. But first, could you drive me and Cheryl to the mall? <laughs> a, pa- a parent's guide to the new teenager. And I thought of that book title as I was studying this. This is exactly what they sound like, doesn't it? Get out of my life. Oh, but first could you drive me and Cheryl to the mall? That, that's, you know, that captures a lot, doesn't it? Right? Um, you know, I wish I didn't put his name down. I can get it for you. Yeah, I can't remember his name. It's a good book. Very well done. He's not like specifically Christian, but you don't have to be. You don't have to be a Christian to figure out teenagers. We all were one. <laughs> um, right? But so, so they want God to keep his part of the covenant and promises. So that's not really one. That's um. You see the heart. You see the human heart in this, and the human condition. It's so desperate, and we, again, we look at our culture today, and we see just the breakneck speed that which. I mean, if you saw what happened on the White House lawn this past week, uh, just uh, absolutely abominable, right? So if you didn't see it, President Joe Biden hosts, invites. The White House invites a number of trans activists. I call them Trantifa in the gay shop. Right? These, 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 are, these, are, these are not these are not your everyday person that struggle with their sexuality. These are the activists that want to cause pain. Okay? He invites them to the White House, right? And of course they get the you saw they put the big gay pride flag in between the two United States flags. Now, you would think that these people have all been vetted, right? If you invite someone to a White House function out on the public lawn of the White House, you would vet them in advance. Well, one of them, this TikTok trans dude, right, who's a guy but who got breast implants, he's still an intact male, but he got breast implants and dresses like a woman and dances like one, etc., etc., she gets alongside Joe and they do a, a picture together and she says, Thanks, he, President he, Biden. Yeah, he, right. I'm sorry. He gets beside Joe Biden and says, Trans rights are human rights. And then, cut back to a little later, 
this man with, with breasts has pulled down his top and is juggling his breasts in front of the camera as our two trans, uh, trans males, so biological females, who have had their breasts removed and they show him their scars. And this is on the White House lawn. And I think to myself, yes, this is profoundly wicked and profoundly evil. But this helps me understand the human heart and the human condition. Not just in them, but embedded deeply in me, the things that I regularly struggle with, including my tendency to, to want to eviscerate people on the other side of the political spectrum and to just tear them down and to just think the absolute worst of them and to not love them. That's the same human condition that shows itself in all kinds of things. And I am, and you are all, partakers of the new covenant. So, we have no excuse to let that mindset perpetuate in us, but yet to find a way to fight against it that honors God, right? So we have the much greater challenge, don't we? Uh, as George Bush used to say about the terrorists, they only have to get it right once. We've got to get it right all the time, right? We do. And so, I hope this is helping us to understand that we have a a role to play in our covenant relationship with God. Where we are to be able to um, do all the things like love your enemies. right? The, 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 the Trantif, as I call them, is my enemy. They are the enemy of the church. I am to love them because that's my part of this covenant relationship with God. Right? That We live under the law of Christ. We don't live under the, new co- the old covenant. Well, we live under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And I'll be, I'll be damned if every day I'm not confronted with this in myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But enough about me. I think you all could amen that to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, tell me I'm not alone here. <laughs> <laughs> Encourage me. Lift me up, Brother Gary. <laughs> I'm with you, brother. Yeah. It's very yeah, talk to you. Well, Paul will use... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Paul will use in Romans too the the, mm. the similar aspects of Israel and yes. Malachi yes. about you blessing the name of God yes. through your how, what's the word in your brother? Yeah. Uh, I got it right here. You cause others to blaspheme God. Yeah. Is it the point of what he's saying, right? Yeah, you um you you the boast, yeah, you boast in the law through your breaking of the law, you dishonor God, mm. for the name of God is blasphemed. Amongst the mm. Gentiles, because of you, just as it's written. Uh, so, you know, the, the point is, is Paul views Israel's failures as a descriptive of human humanity, mm-hmm. of depravity, but also teaching under a new covenant mm-hmm. what we're not to look like. Yep. And yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. You know, so we all want Jesus to come back, right? We want Jesus to come back, right? I mean, we want him to come back. Today would be good. But we're longing for that final, the wait, the great. We want God to fulfill all that. And in this, this, this problem I see with the Israelites reminds me to ask myself: Am I fulfilling my role in the covenant, in this new covenant? You know. Um, but didn't Jesus say? He says, "You honor me with your lips, but yeah. your hearts are far from me." Sure. Yeah. So applicable to Israel and to us. It is. And judgment begins where? Yeah, in the Amen. Okay, here's his God's fifth disputation in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. And I'm going to read 7b, the second part of 7 through 12, where he says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, 
Well, how are we supposed to return? What do you mean? Well, God says, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Answer, in your tithes and contributions. You, will, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you are robbing me. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer. I love that. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. That was Israel's part of the covenant. They were supposed to be the blessed land by which other people would see the light of God's reality. But he says, you're depriving me by not bringing the tithes and the contributions. So the priest's share of the animal sacrifices for food, the contributions of uh, the 10% of their produce, they were supposed to bring that. The theocracy of, of, of Israel was funded by the tithe. Okay? And, the, and so that, that point, the last thing is, then all nations will call you blessed. The nations cannot be blessed when Israel is in disobedience. And that's why we read about Jesus, that he learned obedience as well. Jesus learned obedience, it says in, in Philippians, right? Uh, uh, Hebrews. Hebrews 5.9, 5, thank you. Uh, so, Jesus, again, fulfilled everything Israel did, right? Remember, Israel, Jesus is Israel reduced to one, right? So, he, he did fulfill all that. He fulfilled the calling and the vocation of Israel. But the, it can't go to the Gentiles. Salvation of the Jews first, right? It's for the Jew first. It can't go there until it goes until it's accomplished here. I can't possibly God's the covenant is not going to have its it's it's, it's not going to play out right when this is happening, and that does not set well with God. Why were they not tithing? Well, they didn't think it mattered. You can see they weren't taking the whole covenant seriously. It didn't matter to them. And now this is not a verse for tithing in the church. Tithing is an Old Testament principle for an Old Testament theocracy. But there's certainly a binding principle in giving, and it's throughout the New Testament. Don't tread out, don't you know? Don't uh, don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. It talks about funding uh, the uh, you know the full-time vocational elder. It talks about giving in, in a lot of different places. But there is no percent attached to it because there is no economy that's tied to a national identity like that. So just worth repeating. But our hearts in the new covenant should certainly be overflowing with the joy of giving. Like at one point Paul said, boy, they gave beyond their ability to give. Mm-hmm. They gave till it choked them. You know. um, so you've deprived me of, I've provided a plenty for you. I've brought you back. i brought you into the land. You've got, all your, you've got these things again. But you are cursed with a curse. So, then I've been thinking, okay, why, why are we cursed? Why are things not going well here? Well, what do you mean why? Why are you still asking why? Why ask why? Yeah, I, this is why God is, you know, you see the ideal, how does authority f- properly function? You see that in God. Because if any of you have kids, you know what it's like sometimes to say, how could you possibly have done this? How could you, wh- why do we keep going over the same thing? We've said that to you. If you have kids, if you have, if you have children, even have to say to them, why are we going over this again? Or some equivalent thereof, that you are the exception to the rule. <coughs> Uh, in, in God's sixth and final disputation with his people from the prophet Malachi uh, is in chapter 3, verses 13 to 43. I'm sorry. To, <laughs> chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, pretty much. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. 
So God's doing all this. And, and you would just refer a moment ago, ago Todd, to your children disrespecting, you wouldn't disrespect, I'm sorry, your father's children disrespected. So you disrespecting your dad. That would be it, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what we hear. Your words have been hard against me. You have spoken against me. <laughs> but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is this age-old problem, right? Like why do the wicked prosper, right? Psalm 73 talks about that. Look at how the evil ones prosper. Arrogant people are the ones that are blessed. Evildoers get away with it. But to say it's useless to serve God, it gets us nowhere. Right? That's the thing you've heard people say in so many words. We talked about it when we started the session this morning. It is, that's, how have you wearied me? By saying, what's the profit? Well, why bother? Why should I continue to go to church? Why should I look at what... What does that show? What, what is that revealing? What does that say about a person? No appreciation. Yeah. Yeah, no appreciation at all. They haven't... And it, it, it's all about me, Right? It's, 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 it's again it's us singing back to God what have you done for me lately and it comes it's a heart of unbelief it just is the heart of unbelief which we all have to be on guard against because again the book of Hebrews exhort one another all the time so that you don't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin but but, but encourage one another exhort one another daily it says right <clears throat> sin wants to see things done a certain way so much of the basis of sin is a sense of why isn't it? I wanted this. I, 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 I. And then we see how God's faithful remnant and how God honors those who honor Him. In three sixteen, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. These people come together in church and they talk about God. They get together in little groups and they talk about God. God hears that. Thrills him, you know. Thrills God. And then in in, uh, in chapter four, verse one to two, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil doers will stubble, will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. What a great contrast, right? The God's faithful little remnant, who He has always had, God always has that faithful remnant. <clears throat> and then we see the conclusion of the matter, right? Is a command, a promise, and a final warning. In chapter four, verses four through five, here we go. Remember the law of my servant Moses. <laughs> Nothing is. This is the covenant again. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And we know that that's a very specific allusion to John the Baptist because Jesus said, He is Elijah who has come, if you will hear it. And then, of course, the great day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, there's been that, that great and awesome day is yet future, right? We don't know exactly when. But the question I think we ask ourselves is are we merely expecting God to fulfill His covenant while we do nothing to demonstrate? That our covenant with God is the most meaningful driving force in our lives. 
Does our life say that, right? That's a challenge, I think. That's what these disputations are to the Israelites. Are we merely expecting God to fulfill His covenant? Get out of my life. Oh, but could you drive me to the mall first, right? To fulfill His covenant while we do nothing to demonstrate that our covenant with God is the most meaningful thing. Our life does testify to how meaningful what God has done to us is. Right? And it takes... But, but it still takes consistent being set before the Word of God. So God's, uh, God's preachers, God's voice can speak to us through the Scripture to continue to hold us in, 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 his, in place. To continue to hold us there. Scripture says God upholds all things by the Word of His power. That means you and me as well. He holds together the molecules of our theology, if you will. right, And all the little interconnections. And, and just as a comment on the concluding thought of the series, you know, again, uh, the, uh, from, from the Old Testament survey, Arnold and Bayer say, most of the great doctrinal truths of the church are defined first, not in the New Testament, but in the Old. Right? There are constant references to the Old Testament by Jesus and the Gospel writers and in Acts, as in other places. But it's absolutely impossible to have a robust Christian life without the Old Testament. There's no Christianity, of course, without the Old Testament. Right? So, and that's why this is, you know, back when we decided to go through this series, it was important for us to say, you know, and we're not, like in the fall, we're not going to pick up by going through a one week summary of all the New Testament books. We have a lot of exposure to those on a regular basis. But I hope that by living and saturating yourselves, and, and those that are here most of the time, and I think that's all of you, uh, good for you, by saturating yourselves, saturating your, your, your mind and your heart, and sort of identifying with in various ways our Old Testament uh, brothers and sisters and those who also have uh, uh, met their ultimate and are awaiting their ultimate condemnation but have already met their demise apart from God that it's been meaningful to us and that it helps our New Testament theology our New Covenant theology gives it much more meaning because even though the book of Hebrews says you know the Old Covenant is set aside because it's obsolete right that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean that it is meaningless or that it doesn't define, feed, and again, uh, give a, a foundation to everything that Jesus came and did. When Jesus says he came to fulfill all that was written in the law, and he says it on Luke on the road to Emmaus, there's a reason for that. And he wants us all to know it. Right? So, all right, let's pray and head up that ascend that holy hill up the Faith Baptist. Thank you, Lord, for being able to spend time with your people together in this and interact. Thank you for the opportunity to teach. Thank you for the lessons learned. Thank you for the reality that obtains this very moment. The truths of which are the groundwork for these laid in the Old Testament. For Jesus who came and fulfilled all things and is going to return and bring us the rest of it. He's going to come and receive us unto himself. He's coming and his reward is with him. And to that we just can only simply and humbly ask, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, people.